0: Hey there, art lovers. Mike Handley here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. I'll be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 102, Life in Art and Nature, Reflections on Nearly Four Decades of Exploration with Roseanne Hansen. Everyone, welcome back. I don't know about where you are, but we've been impacted by smoke in the air for it seems like weeks. There are a number of fires in uh, Quebec, which is a province near where I am, and it keeps coming down and uh, altering the air quality here. So it's made kind of getting out in nature and just getting stuff done around the house a little bit more challenging. Uh, You know, just being mindful of the particulates in the air. But I'm hopeful that will change soon with the rain that's coming in the in the next few weeks. I'm hopeful you're giving yourself the space and the opportunity to be creative. So I'm going to share a few updates before we get into the interview. I've been uh, struggling a little bit <laughs> to find the time to be creative in the last few weeks. And it's a weighing, it's been weighing really heavily on me. My job has gotten a lot busier, uh, my day job. And that has kind of leaked into my evenings and weekends with thoughts about the workday and what I'm doing next. And I've just really found it challenging, found it difficult to find those nooks and crannies I've talked about previously to, to create art. And when I get into the, uh, you know, to the end of the day after dinner, where I usually have an opportunity to do some art, I'm just feeling drained. And so I've been struggling with that a lot. Like Just to go back, I had changed my LinkedIn profile some time ago to list myself as an artist first. And while I did it there, I didn't really imprint it on my mind. <laughs> I really didn't take it as seriously as I should. And so, what I've done in the last week is rather than consider myself uh, as my day job in um, health research and, and IS and digital work as my primary role, I'm switching it around. So, I have been taking the approach that I am an artist first. And this stuff I do during the day is really just points in between creativity. It funds what I do uh, because what I'm doing creatively and with the podcast does not make any money. It it actually, (laughs) I spend quite a bit on all of this, but um, it's important for me. But I wanted to kind of take the approach that it's not the side hustle. The, The side hustle. I don't want to say it's my day job, but that's the way I'm looking at it, where creativity is primarily what I'm thinking about. And what I found great about that is as I'm thinking about my work day, as I'm sitting in meetings, I'm thinking about creativity. And that's helping to kind of deal with the anxiety and the stress of doing what I do. And what it does mean then is when I get to the evenings, I'm thinking less about work, because I'm treating that as my as as my main occupation. And so I'm trying to hack myself a little bit, and it's worked for the last week. Uh, You know, I'm going into vacation time in July and August. I'm taking some time, so this will help as well. And I'm also going to do another personal retreat, which I think will help. So I'm kind of taking the approach that I make creative first, and in that is artist, podcaster, educator, speaker, and so on. And what I do during the the day is really becoming a, a smaller role in what's important to me. Obviously, you know, I couldn't live where I live and <laughs> do all the things I could do without my job. But I'm, I'm trying to take that approach, and I've really found it helpful in the last week. It's been challenging. I wanted to submit a, uh, a watercolor piece for a competition, and I just don't think I'm going to have time to finish it because I've just been so busy with so many other things. Most of it work for my day job, some of it creative that I've committed to. So uh, I just want to find a little bit of a, an opportunity to kind of allow things to work a little bit better and, and to ensure that I'm focused on what's what I need to be doing or what I should be doing, and I need to focus on what maybe is the most important thing that I do. So I'm going to take this approach, see where it leads me, and then I have this summer to, to think through this a little bit further and get to a point where I can start creating on a regular basis again. Because when I do it, I feel so good about it. But it's hard sometimes when you're wound up from a day to sit down and draw or paint, when you feel like you're cheating on your work day because there's stuff that was unfinished and you should be thinking about that. And uh, so anyways, I, I feel like I've gotten to a little bit of a better place, so I thought I'd share that with you. So one of the things that's going to come up in the interview is my upcoming talk at Wild Wonder. So I was honored to be selected as one of the speakers for Wild Wonder Conference, which is a... Um, an online conference happening in september of this year and there's about 30 speakers and i'll be doing a talk on mastering graphite it'll be about 90 minutes long i'm going to cover all elements of graphite as much as i can within 90 minutes <laughs> and i'm hopeful there'll be opportunity for us to connect through uh through zoom in these breakout rooms and things like that as well so the reason i'm mentioning it is because the tickets are now on sale And so I would highly recommend doing this. I think it's five days, and I'm going to be there attending all five days, checking out all the talks. There is so much content here, and so many talks will cause you to think differently about your creative journey, your interaction with nature, and I really encourage you to attend. I got a lot from it last year, and I was going this year whether I was presenting or not, so... I'm anxious and I will provide a link in the show notes to Wild Wonder and you can grab your tickets now because they do go up in price at some point. I can't remember the current pricing or what the the future pricing will be, but they're on sale now and it's uh, the opportunity to see the whole week and enjoy kind of eight to eight every day. It's crazy, but it's a wonderful time and John Muir Laws and, and the whole team, Roseanne Hansen and and everybody else that's tied to this, it takes a team to do this and they do a fantastic job. So I recently joined the Canadian Society of Painters and Watercolor, and it was funny because I reached out to uh, one of the uh, directors, and she had uh, I had heard that she does these kind of featured artist things, and I was like, I want to be notified of these because I want to learn from these people, and she's like, Mike, can you talk? (laughs) Can you be one of our featured artists? And uh, so I'm doing that this week. So I'm going to be spending 45 minutes talking about myself. It's a Zoom call. And to be honest, even though I do this podcast and this is episode 102, (laughs) I'm still going to be nervous about this. I've been thinking about what am I going to say? I don't know uh, how deep to go in the weeds here. I've got 45 minutes to kind of talk about my journey, but I am looking forward to this. I think for me, this kind of opportunity to put the presentation together is a chance for me to reflect on what I've done and where I've come from. And so I'm thankful for that opportunity. So I'm gonna be amongst some really well-established and highly skilled artists. And so I am uh, humbled and honored to be able to present to this group. And I will let you know in the next podcast how it went, but I'm looking forward to it, it should be fun. So as a matter of pieces I've worked on, I did a Shoebill Stork in my A6 Etcher Hot Press sketchbook. It actually started out as a songbird. I had sketched the songbird with my micron pen. That's typically what I do when I do these little watercolor pieces in my sketchbook. And I looked at it, and I'm thinking, I'm not feeling songbird. You're just, no, you're not working for me. So I sketched over it the shoebill stork, and I'm really glad I did. It was a chance for me to play with a background and to to draw this really intriguing uh, animal. And uh, I'd love to see one in person at some point, but I really enjoyed doing that. And to get back to it, this is one of those things where you do it, and it's like, I missed it so much. So um, yeah, so I did a shoebill stork and I've got a few other pieces planned as well. And the other piece that I'm doing in graphite right now is horses. I actually started uh, the mare and I'm going to do a foal beside her as well. And uh, I'm going to do a little reel from this. I hope you like the reel and I hope you like the music. I've already got it sorted out (laughs) as to what music I'm going to use. And I remember drawing horses a lot when I was a kid. Like I would draw horse profiles all the time. And I'm talking like, you know, seven, eight years old. And then I've told the story before, but there was a a girl that came to our school and she could draw horses way better than me. And I felt like I wasn't an artist anymore. And so I stopped drawing, I stopped drawing horses. <laughs> so and she drew horses really, really well. So I was just really intimidated. I didn't know how to handle those kind of emotions when I'm, you know, eight to nine years old. So I really haven't drawn a lot since. I did do some line art horses uh, uh, when I was a guest teacher for my daughter's class in how to how to draw. Really haven't drawn any horses, so this opportunity to do it in graphite. I'm going to play with some graphite powder and uh, that that'll come out probably within 2 or 3 days of this podcast. I'll uh, share it as a reel on Instagram and I hope you like that. So th- this kind of stuff I do in my moleskin book uh, sketchbook because the the paper is much much smoother. And uh, it's just kind of the book I've been doing graphite in. So I'm looking forward to kind of finishing this one off and we'll see how it turns out. (laughs) I'll share it no matter what. How's that? So the last thing I want to mention is, and I hinted at this in the last podcast, I am going to take a break over the summer. I'm going to take some time away from the podcast uh, just to do some other stuff. I am not going to say this and then not come back to it. I'm really just taking some time off. You know, I'm going to do some things with the family. I'm going to do some work around the house. And I'm going to create a whole bunch of material. some of it art, some of it video. Uh, I'm going to just do a whole bunch of stuff. There's a whole kind of uh, package of things I want to get done over the summer. And I really just need to take this time off and take the time away from the podcast. As I've talked about before, it can be eight to 10 hours per episode of my time. And this kind of opportunity to not do that for a period of time is going to be helpful for me to kind of get things going again and, and feel like I've got a few things in control and be able to elevate, once again, back to my theme for this year, to be able to elevate my game when it comes to this creative journey. And so I thank you for your patience. The There'll be one more episode, so episode 103 will be the last one before the break. And the next episode, which will be 104, will come out August 21st. So that'll be when I'm coming back into it. So I'm hopeful that you'll be here with me and a guest possibly <laughs> on uh, August 21st to listen to 104 and then we'll st- head straight into it again every two weeks. And once again, thank you for understanding and thank you for uh, for being part of this journey and keep an eye out for my Instagram. You can follow my newsletter. I'm going to be putting out a few more of those. I haven't been doing a great job at that. So I'm going to be sending out some more newsletters and also follow me on YouTube, because I'm going to start pushing some content there. I've got some that I've recorded, uh, finally, and I'm going to be pushing out some videos there as well. So I will not be quiet, but I won't be podcasting. So I uh, look forward to seeing you again in August. So before we head into the interview with Roseanne Hansen, I just wanted to mention her voice wasn't in the best of forms. She was um, struggling with her voice a little bit, but kind of true to her nature, we forged ahead anyway. So when you hear her speak, be mindful that she was struggling a little bit with her voice. And I'm just so thankful that uh, she decided to come on anyway and just push through it because that's, that's Roseanne. And so I really appreciated that conversation with her. And with that, let's head into the interview. I discovered my guest this week by way of a talk she gave at the Wild Wonder Conference in 2022. She spoke about pigments in the natural world. And following her talk, we nerded out in a Zoom breakout room, all about inks. And I shared my experience with Mushroom make. It was fantastic. Born and raised in Southern Arizona, Roseanne Beggy Hansen has made a name for herself as a passionate conservationist, gifted naturalist, talented artist, and engaging writer. She attended the University of Arizona, studying journalism and ecology and evolutionary biology, paving the way for a career dedicated to preserving and communicating the importance of our natural world. Alongside her husband, Jonathan, Roseanne has co-authored a variety of award-winning books on natural history and the outdoors. Notably, their work Ragged Mountain Guide to Outdoor Sports clinched the 1997 Outdoor Book Award, showcasing their combined expertise. Beyond the written word, Roseanne also found time on her journey to create one-of-a-kind gemstone and precious metal jewelry. She has also made a significant impact in the non sector, founding Conserventures LLC to provide developmental and communications support to small organizations. In 2009, she leveraged her love for exploration and conservation to establish the Overland Expo, a successful adventure travel event that resonates with outdoor enthusiasts worldwide. Roseanne's contributions to conservation and exploration earned her prestigious fellowships with the Explorers Club, Society of Women Geographers, and the Royal Geographical Society. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Roseanne Hansen. Hi, Roseanne, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Mike.
0: Thank you for uh, for joining me. I was so enthusiastic about meeting you last year at Wild Wonder when you were talking about natural inks. And uh, we had a conversation afterwards and talked about mushroom ink as well. And I really identified with not only that, but all the work that you've done, all the books and and the ongoing work in trying to connect people with nature through creativity. And I just think it's wonderful. So I'm so thankful that you've made some time available in your very busy schedule to come on <laughs> to the podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you. And I, and I still need to follow up on the Mushroom ink because I, I've been in Arizona for a bit and we don't have a lot of mushrooms right now. But when we get back to Alaska, I hope to do that.
0: That would be fun. So I want to explore kind of the past in how you got to where you are now. You've got such a tight integration with uh, or involvement with nature. And I'm wondering as a kid, were you the one that was always outside and, and playing and looking at things and drawing and that kind of stuff? What was your childhood like?
1: That's a really great question. And I have to say, yes, I was very fortunate that my, my parents intentionally chose a property on the far, far, far undeveloped edge of Tucson in the 1950s, when my father relocated there for work, because they wanted to raise their children adjacent to open space and wild places, and give them an opportunity that they never had. So... We basically had no rules um except to be home by dark. <laughs> and my father always joked, but I now I know he wasn't really joking that he said if you if you get hurt, make sure you do so by the road so I can find you. <laughs> but yes, we we grew up my my five siblings, four siblings, five of us, kind of running amok in nature. We s- didn't watch TV, we didn't stay inside, we just played all day outside. And while none of it was structured, which I actually think unstructured play in the outdoors is the key. I I think that that was really what gave me the lifelong passion for being outdoors and loving nature.
0: What was it about? Do you remember as a kid? Were you fascinated with certain? Was it was it animals? Was it uh, the plants and the trees? Like, do you remember what what? what you re- really enjoyed? Because I the, the reason I'm asking is I, I don't know what it would be like growing up in that environment versus where I am. So I'm curious about what was it about being outside that you really found interesting, or do you have any stories about that?
1: Huh. Um, yes. So I think it was the, for me, it was a little more philosophical, if you will, because when I look back, I realize being given unfettered access to you know, wild and what would be considered kind of, you know, not safe. There were rattlesnakes and uh, we were running around on motorcycles and on our horses and we were miles from home. I mean, can you imagine that happening today when you've got eight-year-old kids running around on motorcycles or horses or whatever? But that unfettered access helped develop in me a sense of, intelligence like smart i have to be smart i've got to make sure i don't do anything dumb or my parents are going to revoke my access <laughs> <laughs> and did i fall and then why did that make me fall in love well that made me fall in love with the freedom of being in nature where you there is nothing to hold you back you are able to choose to do anything you want explore anything sit under a tree for 4 hours and watch that that ants or climb that tree or build a fort, which we did. We were always, you know, aware that there were rattlesnakes and, and things that could hurt us. And we were just expected to be smart and not, not do anything dumb. And that helped me in my, my years today.
0: <laughs> did you feel that like having grown up in an environment that you were free from boundaries Do you think that helped you later in life as well to understand that uh, regardless of of who you are and where you came from, that you had the opportunity opportunity to kind of do and be whatever you want?
1: Absolutely. And I told my mother that just a few years ago, right before she died, um, that it was that trust that my parents gave us that made me realize, oh, well, as long as I'm smart and... Pay attention to what they're saying and pay attention to nature. I can do anything that I want. And that's a gift that very few of us get. And I've never, ever forgotten that that is a gift. And I hope to pass it on to others through the work that I do and to encourage others to let go of whatever constraints we have on us. Because I'm fortunate I didn't have constraints that kept me from chasing my dreams and having a completely unstructured life. I have I have never done anything normal in my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Were you creating? Were you drawing and painting at the time as well? Or
1: Good question. So my mom created, um, we had this room, we called it the family room. It's a big room in the house where all the kids' bedrooms came off. And she populated it with art supplies and craft things. I mean, this was the 60s and 70s, so there was everything you could imagine. We had decoupage and drawing things and I'm trying to think, you know, uh, uh, sewing. You know, whatever we wanted to do, Mom would jump into with us. So there was this sense of discovering crafts and art whatever we wanted to do, you could just try it. And there were no, again, no boundaries. It was like, oh, you want to try that? Okay, let's do that.
0: And so as you got older, did you kind of refine your interests? Like in through school and in high school, did you get a sense of what you wanted to pursue? Uh, I'm sure that was influenced by, by what was happening at home and the environment that you were in there and being outside. But did you get a sense in through high school what you wanted to do?
1: Well, interesting because... Um, At that point, nothing became linear for me. I thought that I wanted to become an international reporter. I had wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl, and actually had done some pretty ridiculous things for a kid. I had gotten myself a job. By the time I was 16 years old, I was working for the Daily Newspaper in Tucson because that's what I wanted to do. And I thought I was gonna be like Brenda Starr. Remember that comic? I don't know if you got that comic as a kid. There was this uh, Sunday comic called Brenda Starr, who was, she was a reporter and very glamorous. And that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, but when I was 19, I met Jonathan, who became my husband. Um, And my life took another turn. And so we had the same passions for nature, outdoors, writing, learning, exploring. So the path went a different way. No, I didn't go to New York City and become a, (laughs) a New York Times reporter. Although there are kids in my high school class who still think I did because someone wrote that on my yearbook page that I had gone to. New York and there's people who still think I did I don't know
0: <laughs> and so you met who would become your husband at the later in life what was it about that that uh, caused you to deviate did you then want to go into science uh, like so uh, like w- what is it that pulled you away from writing
1: good question nothing pulled me away from writing uh, strictly reporting so reporting reporting would be you are sent somewhere to you know, find the truths that are there. But what happened was, this whole new world opened where my husband was—or then not husband, but boyfriend—studying um, ecology and evolutionary biology in the University of Arizona, where we both were students. And I was taught, as a girl, that girls can't do science that girls can't do mathematics, that we are not, don't have an aptitude for that. I was actually taught that. I was told that by a teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, we all know, completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I saw this opportunity. So I ended up getting two degrees, um, one in journalism and one in ecology and evolutionary biology. And I had never thought that I could do science. And when I got into science, I adored it. Unlike humanities, which have a lot of questions and things that are never answered, the humanities have a lot of things that leave it open to thought. The sciences were all about data and, you know, mathematics. I didn't know it. I I was actually good at math. I was told I couldn't be, but I was actually good at it, and I really enjoyed the fact that it was very black and white. You either um, you get it right or you don't, and then you work hard until you get it right. So I really enjoyed the, the science and art interface right then. That was where I knew that science and art was where it was going to be. Art being writing. Writing is an art mm-hmm. as well. So, I knew that was where I wanted to go
0: and so you you get these two degrees, and then what did you decide to do with that? because ultimately that's did that end up taking you somewhere else? Uh, did you end up traveling the world? I mean, obviously, when you get exposed to that, you start thinking, I need to go here and experience this and over here and experience that. so what happened to your journey after you got your degrees?
1: i my husband and I have never had, as I said, a traditional life. We didn't have a plan. We weren't the type of people that said, oh, well, we're going to get this degree and then we're going to go get a job here or we're going to be, go to graduate school and become postdocs and teach and do X, Y, Z. Opportunities arose. We call it jumping off cliffs. So a cliff would present itself in front of us and we would hold hands and jump. And the first time that happened was very early on in our, our years together. We had barely, I'm not even sure, we had finished college. We were both on the long term. We were paying our own way. We didn't have, uh, our parents didn't pay for our school. We paid for our own, um, even with scholarships. And we had to cover it. So we had this opportunity very early on. Someone offered us a chance to become caretakers at a wildlife refuge in a very remote part of Arizona, very remote, it was a brand new refuge. We would live alone in a million acres of wilderness with no income, no outside contact with the world. We had jobs. We had a our first house, we had a mortgage, and we both said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so we quit our jobs and moved to the middle of nowhere with no idea how we would make any money. Or survive. This is 1995. So what happened was we wrote our first book, the Southern Arizona Nature Almanac. Several other books kind of happened during that time we were there, and that sort of launched us into being full-time naturalists and writers. And this whole time, of course, I've always been a nature, a journaler. I've always kept a journal, very scientific at first, but I kept really, really meticulous notes of our entire time in this place, and that kind of blossomed into something else later on, but my writing, my journaling, my my notes like that were an intrinsic part of our work and our lives mm-hmm. as writers, and we had many, many other cliffs after that. <laughs> I mean, we left that one, we went on to run a guest ranch in one of the most storied natural history places on the planet called um, Creek, uh, Portal, Arizona, Cave Creek, in the Churikawa Mountains, where every naturalist in the world wants to live. Because if you, if you Google it, that's where it's like the birding hotspot of North America. It's, it's called Portal, Arizona. So we lived there for a couple of years. And we just kept having these opportunities. While I was there, I was offered a chance to work in Africa. I'm like, oh, Okay, let's do that.
0: <laughs> and you went?
1: Yeah. Cool. Why Help. not? I mean, uh, why not? I mean, because I had a background in conservation, I was knew some people in that area who were working in conservation, and so I was invited to take part in an exchange between conservation leaders in Kenya, who were Maasai, and conservation leaders in Arizona, who were cowboys, so we, we had this great exchange that I took part in, so, and that led to work in Africa.
0: Was it a big adjustment to go from Arizona to Africa?
1: Uh, well, I didn't live there full-time. It was working on and off, okay. um, but absolutely not in the slightest was it an adjustment because the habitat that I lived in was almost identical. We're talking about um, plains, you know, uh, savanna, and desert, and... The only thing we don't have left in North America are the megafauna. Um, So instead of elephants and and, um, lions, you know, we we used to have mastodons and saber-toothed tigers here. (laughs) But but the landscape is still the same, and I feel vastly at home in the savannas of, of eastern Africa.
0: So I will, uh, I meant to mention this earlier, but when you were talking about uh, Portal Arizona and uh, anything else that you mentioned, I will include links. In the show notes, as I always do, so the person listening can check it out and possibly stop into this. You've got me. I've never been to Arizona, but it sounds like uh, (laughs) that would be my first stop. That sounds like a a beautiful place. It is. It's
1: yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. Southern Arizona, where the Sky Islands are, is magic. It's absolutely magic.
0: Have you ever been tempted by other parts of the world? Like you, so you've been in Arizona. Uh, you spent some time in Africa. Are there parts of the world that you've been tempted by or that you visited that that provided a a slightly different perspective? Like where the the environment's completely different, you know, going off to Iceland or someplace much colder or going much more tropic as well in uh, kind of your journeys?
1: (laughs) Interesting. So um, two parts to that. Um, The first part is, In the early 2000s, after our adventures in the Churicahua Mountains in southern Arizona, my husband was part of a small group of people who started a magazine called Overland Journal because we all saw the need in America for a community and a communication piece for people who wanted to explore the world but weren't doing it in a destructive kind of heavy-handed way the four-wheel drive community in america at the time was heavily dominated by kind of the four by four hold my beer, and i'll you know watch this you know kind of the sorry it's just it was just really a bad scene you know just conquering the landscape instead of just exploring it anyway so um we got involved with that I started an event to support his magazine, the event Overland Expo. So for 10 years from 2009 to 2019, I ran this massive event, it actually became huge. During that time, we got to travel, intentionally traveled all over the world. We drove the length of South America. We explored Australia for several years. We we bought a vehicle in Australia, a land cruiser, and explored all of Australia. Then we shipped it to Africa and explored Africa. And then we shipped it back. So the answer is, to the specific part of your question, though, has any of those really expanded? No, until last year, actually two years ago, we returned to Alaska and fell in love with it, ended up buying a place in Fairbanks and then spending the winter. (laughs) Now, you are in Ontario? No. That's right. I'm in Ottawa. Okay. Yeah. So you have some pretty severe winters, so you know what yeah. I'm talking about. When we landed, it was minus 39 degrees Fahrenheit. I've never, I mean, we're talking Tucson, you know, yeah, I've done 110 degrees Fahrenheit, but cold is like, <laughs> you know, 20 degrees. <laughs> yes. Um, Minus 39, that was an amazing experience, and we love it. Properly dressed, you can actually get out and do things. And the thing that struck me the most was watching ravens cavorting like nothing was different in minus 39 degree temperature. So we're talking about any, or actually red poles, common red poles. Do you have them in Ottawa? Yes. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable birds out at the most the lowest temperatures you can imagine and they're out flipping around gathering whatever's the bird old birch seeds so that gave me a new respect for nature that i didn't know yet um i got, i knew about animals that can survive 110 degrees and no water for two months three months but yeah, so that—that's I would say Alaska is our next big wow.
0: <laughs> I do like the cold, so <laughs> I'm not sure I could live in a place like Arizona. I <laughs> like the-
1: it's all what you—it's all—it's in the mind. It's in the mind. I love to ski. I love to get out. We—we we actually really, really love the high north and the, the Arctic.
0: I like the observable differences in the seasons, like the drastic differences in the yes. seasons. I enjoy that. It's so funny you mentioned ravens, and we've got ravens and crows around here. They always make me laugh because yeah. they walk so much. I feel like someone has to tell the crows and the ravens, you know, if you, <laughs> if you don't keep using your wings, evolution's going to catch up with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there might be a, a raven in our future that, that walks. That walks. And does, so we get like a dodo raven. Um, yeah. it, I don't know. Up in Alaska in the winter, of course, they don't. They don't go onto the ground because I think they're, I think they would stick yeah, on the ice. They certainly go down to the snow, but they wouldn't want to yep. be on the ice. So we don't see them much on the ground in the winter. But I do notice they've adapted to the light poles, which are on 24 hours a day in Alaska. And they're warmer. Right. So you see right. them sitting on the light pole.
0: They're so intelligent. I know. <laughs> it's funny because there's so many animals you can say that about that people just neglect the fact that they talk about, you know, um, dolphins or or whales or, or whatever. And everybody always talks about, wow, they're so intelligent. You could say that about so many animals, but crows and ravens are kind of incredibly They're at smart.
1: the apex of, of that, I think.
0: Yes. Being able to use little tools to do things and yeah. stuff. It's, it's crazy. So you're planning on going to Alaska again? So you've got this place up there now, so obviously yes. you're heading back at some point.
1: So we're in the process of actually moving our domicile to to be there most of the time. Uh, it's just the quality of life there is so much better than we have in Arizona right now in terms of as soon as we get there, everything slows down. People don't run around like they do down here. They're not as... They're more tuned to nature. Almost everybody hunts, fishes, forages. When August, September, October roll around, nothing happens. Everybody is out doing it. And we love that. We love that we go to our favorite liquor store and there is a sign on the door that says, Back in October, right? I mean, who's ever heard of a business that shuts its doors that can survive because everybody's like, Oh, yeah, okay we get that right. I'm out of here too so I think there's just this idea of a different way to, to live that is slower more intentional that goes very very well with my current focus on the nature journaling which is you know observation, recording and just everybody up there gets it it's, it's an interesting confluence
0: so we're going to spend, I think, a lot of time talking about the nature journaling and what you've done in that space and supporting it and uh, actioning things there. But I wanted to ask you, because I noticed on your site, you were talking about being, you know, being able to work with with gems and and metal and like, <laughs> what's that about? How did you weave time in for that with everything else that you were doing?
1: <laughs> it's like I said, there's all these, um, I've never had a linear life, and in the... Uh, gosh when was that like the early 2000s so i have a history in my family my father one of his favorite things to do as a a, just something for fun was it's called rock hounding do you know that term and and so rock hounding so that's a big thing here so you go out looking for collectible Rocks, ge- okay. geology. So you're looking for specimens. So my father loved going out in southern Arizona is Arizona and northern Mexico are hugely famous for uh geologic specimens. So turquoises, chrysocolla, um, agates, uh, uh opals, fire agates, oh it's just like on a fire opals, excuse me on and on and on and so you go to these old mine tailings and things and you can you actually look for these things so as kids my dad like dragged all of us out and there's pictures of us you know with our and i still have the satchel and my rock hammer that i got from my dad i have my dad's rock hammer it's really precious to me so he started helped start the tucson gem and mineral society it was a thing in the 50s uh, that that people did, if you, if you look it up. And then that became, later, they started the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show, which became the largest gem and mineral show in the world. So it's in my blood. So my dad was a lapidary, which means you take these beautiful rock specimens that you collect, turquoise, Montana agates, Mexican fire opals, whatever, and you cut them and you grind them into stones that can be set in jewelry or what have you. And then he taught himself metalsmithing, and I used to sit up at night. That's how he relaxed. He would work in his shop, and I would sit with him and watch. And so I absorbed that, and later he gave me his entire setup and all of his rocks and minerals. And so I started a business making jewelry by cutting stones, and setting them in silver, and copper, and I did that for a number of years. I was in galleries all over the West. I went to shows. I, I did the whole thing. It was very intense.
0: That's uh, I'm always amazed by the people that can do that kind of work because it's it's beautiful and it's got you know it's there's a huge 3D element to that right. So it's not just looking at that uh, that that gem in one direction right. You're looking at it yeah. offset and uh, understanding how the light's going to be hitting it and how to place it and uh, all exactly
1: that kind of it was, it was and it uh, but there's also a an element that goes before that um, but I always sketched every piece I did and I would actually I kept a sketchbook by my bed because I would dream about settings and designs and I would wake up and I would sketch the design so it creativity was non-stop it would just things would occur to me. And then I would think, well, how do I make that? I don't know. I'll just have to figure that out. I have no idea. Totally self-taught.
0: And are you still doing that now?
1: No. I. Uh, there was a, one of those crossroads, one of those cliffs came up when I was offered a chance to work in African conservation. It was, do, do I keep doing the metalwork or do I go get to work in Africa? And i I chose Africa, and I also was very tired of producing pieces. Um, How do I put this? The art became commerce, and the joy and creativity was buried by the commerce, so it was cranking out pieces to sell that I didn't... Often you weren't appreciated for what you did. People would come up to my booth at an art show and say, $200, $200, I could get that at Walmart for 20 <laughs> And you'd be like, okay, well, fine, then go to Walmart because I don't want to sell this to you anyway. But that was soul-destroying, you know. You spend 5, 6, 10 days working on one piece and someone wants you to sell it to them for 20 bucks.
0: You know, there's a great show on, uh, on BritBox that talks about this where people are trying to understand how to turn their craft into income. And... This conversation always comes up about okay, so you're selling this thing for you know once again it's it's in UK right so you're selling this thing for seventy pounds but you know you're spending <laughs> you know three days making it and uh, but it's I think absurd. it's it absurd it is it is and it's it's challenging as an artist because what you've got to try and do as an artist is is create that narrative that story around it so that people understand the value and the time. And it's challenging for some people because I think the assumption is, well, it's I made it so, and, and you know, I, I should be able to charge $200, but sometimes people don't understand what's involved with that, right? And all they're looking at is the shiny blue thing. And I saw shiny <laughs> blue things at Walmart, right? So.
1: so the best advice I ever got for my jewelry business was a fellow jeweler who said, double your prices. And that terrified me. I was like, what? I'm already charging more than I, I think, and I did. I, I sucked it up, and uh, I started charging 400 500 and they started selling more. And I stopped going to the open shows and selling more to galleries, where the people who went to galleries knew to appreciate artists for the art that they are creating. So I sold more pieces at four or $500 dollars than I did at the $100, 200 That was interesting, the psychology, wasn't it? Um, the The open craft fairs were not the place for what I was doing. But I was really glad to get out. Now I only do it for fun and for friends or myself. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. At some point... All of these things that you've experienced lead you towards nature journaling. I shouldn't say lead, because you were nature journaling before that, but it becomes more prominent for you. And so how did that happen, where the nature journaling became more significant? You got involved with Wild Wonder, and, and we can talk into detail about that as well. But and, and then maybe in there somewhere, we can talk about the inks, because I'm not sure where the inks come in. If, <laughs> If that's if that's around the nature journaling, because you're, it, I just find it interesting that you were doing this work as a lapidary, and then you took the materials you were setting, and they were they became the ink.
1: Oh, I never thought about yeah. that. My lapis lazuli and turquoise. Hmm. Yeah. So the 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 journaling was constant in my life since I was eight years old. Uh, my father again we're going back to some really awesome parents here my father built me a weather station when i was eight years old I, i'm a weather nerd and every day at 4 p.m i would go out with my little journal and record the weather and, and this is why to this day i'm teased by people like Evia and others even jack i'm the metadata queen because like weather location you know position condition and context come on people it's all about the <laughs> metadata since I was eight years old. So that's 50 years, five zero. And I kept that up my entire life. How did that blossom into what I'm doing today? As I consider it, uh, it was an opportunity in 2019 when I I sold my event. I sold Overland Expo right before COVID, right? Oh my gosh. It was enormous. Uh, I built it into two shows a year, with 50,000 attendees, that's five fifty thousand attendees, it was killing me, it was too much, Um, this was an overland, it was an adventure travel event, it was fabulous, I loved the people, I loved everything about it, you know, it's it's self-sufficient travel, it's like jumping in your Land Rover and driving around the world, or your motorcycle, and the most amazing people, Um, but it was just too much, so I sold it, And then I wanted to go back to my roots of natural history, nature journaling. I didn't know how I was going to do that. And then I was part of the Nature Journal Club on Facebook, which is John Muirlaw's group. And I don't know, not a month or two after I was kind of cut loose and free, I saw a post from Beth Gilogli that said, Hey, we're thinking about doing this event called Wild Wonder. And I'm looking for people to help volunteer who know how to run events. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> ding, I know how to do events. <laughs> I can do this. Um, and that was our first, 2019 was in person. So I was the program director. Beth knew how to do all the marketing and everything. And I knew how to do all the programming and setting things up and you know making a really robust program. And then of course 2020 happened. And we had to pivot to online, so then I had to learn online programming. Everybody did, so we pivoted to that. So that kind of helped bring journaling back into my life full-time, even though I never stopped doing it. It was always very scientific to me until about six years ago I decided to teach myself to draw more formally and to watercolor. Watercolor not an easy Medium, you as are, you might You know. are correct, yes. It's like the hardest one you can pick, I think, mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's very, you have to learn to speak a language that is extremely complex between pigment, water, and paper. And if you change any of those variables, everything changes. And you have to learn each of the, 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 the syntaxes. The syntax of color, the pigment, the syntax of the paper, the syntax of the water, and then make it work for you. But it it's the best for field work because it dries quickly. You can put it in your notebook. I tried pencils, colored pencils. Didn't I didn't want to carry twenty or thirty pencils with me because I, I ended up zeroing in and I I just use five colors. I don't. That's all I use. I'm a total minimalist.
0: That's cool. I, I, and I would agree about watercolor. It's it's almost like you're dancing with a partner, um, mm. mm-hmm. and sometimes the partner wants to do rock and roll, and sometimes <laughs> they want to do flamenco. It just feels like yeah. you have to constantly be doing this negotiation. And you know, if it's if it's dry outside, if it's if it's more humid, uh, if you're sitting down, if you're doing it on a desk, it's all a different dance. And totally. I. It took me, I've said this before, It's. it took me five or six tries before I finally sorted it out, but it was always making me so frustrated because I... Doesn't it
1: make you crazy? I mean, it yeah. uh, was uh, uh, Sherry uh, Blowcroft? Uh, Bla- yes.
0: Sherry Bla- uh, Blaucroft, Yeah, I had her on here. Yeah.
1: Amazing. So she was, uh, even, re- I took one of her classes and she even had the graciousness, I think I was one of, I don't know, hundreds of students, to respond to me directly because I was like, I'm following all your directions but it's not working wow what am i doing then she was the first one who said where are you like well what do you mean where am i like well i'm in arizona she's like well yeah you have like five percent humidity is and it's true the page was drying literally a minute after i'd lay down so her directions to be like oh you know get the page wet, and then you can drop in and do, you know, uh, wet on wet. And I'm like, whoa, this is not working. (laughs) It's because it wasn't wet on wet for me. It was instantly wet on dry. And it looked like horrible. So she helped me learn um, that I have to take smaller chunks when I'm in Arizona or even in Alaska when it's minus 39. I have painted at minus 20 outside. Um, With a little bit
0: of vodka or just a lot of
1: vodka, (laughs) (laughs) but it's the same concept you go small and you have to like work, and you can't do a big sheet outdoors. No, it's just not at this climate, anyway. She was marvelous,
0: yeah. She's uh, she was wonderful on here, and um, I really enjoyed Sherry. She's going to be actually in my city in the next month. But I won't be, I, I'm going to try and see if I can connect with her, but I, she's here teaching a course, which I won't be able to attend, but uh,
1: yeah. Well, she's a, a, one of the top instructors in the world on for for the medium.
0: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, she's wonderful. It's great that you taught yourself to draw, because I think that, I mean, that's really in some ways what this podcast is about, is people coming To it and understanding that they've got an opportunity to create regardless of where they are in life, and you know, not feeling bound by what you've done previously, but excited about what you can do, and and taking more kind of formal classes and things like watercolor and drawing and all the stuff that we, you know, we know we could do, but we want to just do it better and we spend the time to do it. What was the, you know, in taking kind of these classes and focusing on nature journaling, do you remember any aha moments about, oh, I've, uh, you know, rather than all the metadata, I figured out color or I figured out perspective or like, what kind of things did you stumble upon there as you were trying to refine what you were doing?
1: Oh, that's that's a really, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I think about a lot as I teach a lot because I come at this from a completely different angle than a lot of art practitioners. I am a naturalist. I am a communicator. I use journaling to study nature. I use it to learn. My journals are not to create art. I have been, as we said, I've been a practitioner of art for sale as a metalsmith and lapidary in a traditional studio. I never wanted or intended my journaling to produce finished art. It is intended to allow me to dive deeper into nature and to learn and to explore. And explore is the big word with a capital E. Explore, which means not just that can be physical. You can explore a new place. Explore can also be your mind. You're exploring a new concept, a new animal, a new plant, a new place, habitat. So for me the journaling wasn't really about the drawing. The drawing, learning to draw, was really when, wasn't learning to draw. I drew to learn. Hmm. I, I teach drawing to learn. And that's a, that's a big theme for me that I will be developing more in the next year. Um, I'm going to be teaching classes called "Drawing to Learn," because I want people to let go of the idea uh, that learning to draw is scary. We can all learn to draw. We're not born with that skill. People say, "Oh, I could never draw. I I wasn't given that gift." Well, it's not a gift. It's a skill, mm-hmm. like any language. Drawing is a a language. You have to learn the words, you know, the the strokes, the proportions, the different steps you need to take. So, none of us were born knowing a language we had to learn it um, so I really really am passionate about that and the journaling is just is just part of that so I'm I'm super interested in that concept of using our art if you will as a, a tool to learn
0: that's a really good approach and I agree like We're not born with this kind of talent. It is a skill. And some of us are more open to developing the skill. And I think we are hard on ourselves. You know, it's it's different than deciding to make sourdough bread. And maybe you give yourself three or four attempts, and then you probably get to something pretty decent. And art takes way more effort than that. So I think we're a little bit hard on ourselves. And I think those opportunities that present themselves where we mess things up, yeah. We should be thankful for that. That's that's the time when you learn. And so we need to be thankful for those points in time.
1: And that's a good point. That's a good point. One of the things I do in, in my beginning journaling classes is a required session where everybody has to practice together where you go out and draw something, and you come back to the group, and you pair up with someone. And that someone, your partner gives you feedback on what you've drawn and it's always going to be positive they're going to say oh my gosh that's wonderful and what i make people do and they hate this and and so many people have trouble with it is i say you have to say thank you when someone says that's beautiful you have to say thank you not oh no 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 that could be so much better oh gosh no this is horrible oh you know that's what we all want to say right i mean you probably do it i do it but if you train yourself to stop and go gosh thank you you know what the only horrible drawing is the one you never did
0: exactly yeah agreed uh, we need to get more of that out so they don't die with us we need to- <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: it's so hard
0: it is and maybe, like, we kind of skipped over this. I just assume people know what nature journaling is. So maybe mm. maybe I can ask you to explain from your perspective, what is nature journaling? Because I think a lot of people think it's finished pieces, but it's much more than that, or, or much less than that, mm. <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it.
1: That's a really good point. I like the much less than that. It's different to different people. All of us have a different... Definition: There is no one definition. I want to make sure that that's really, really clear. I think you could distill it down to say that nature journaling is the process or act of intensely observing nature and recording what you see, hear, and feel on paper or electronically on an iPad or some electronic media to... Share either with just yourself or with others. It has no end audience that is prescribed. So, really, you can distill it down to observing and recording nature, whether it's in words, pictures, d- data, numbers. You know, a scientist studying white-crowned sparrow vocalization patterns, writing down hash marks of vocalizations for 10 hours a day, that's nature journaling. Someone drawing intensely uh, the white-crowned sparrows, their different plumages, the different races, that's nature journaling. So I I think it spans everything in between.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the vocalizations because I started thinking, wait a second so I don't know if you have a Mac or iPhone, but um, there's an app called Freeform that came out. No. Uh, and Freeform is an interesting app that is really just a large whiteboard. Hmm. And so it's kind of almost infinite. So what I do is is when I want to draw something, I drop my image in there. So I've got Freeform documents that have a bunch of images, and I can see them on my iPad, my Mac, and my phone. And when I want to draw something, I kind of look around my white desktop and i click on an image and i say you know zoom and then that's what i draw but what you can also do is you can embed video audio and so when you when you were talking about that like i've done a lot of work in procreate and in Mm -hmm. drawing and procreate right but then when you started saying vocalizations i'm thinking why don't i do something in procreate and then put that into freeform and then complement it with some audio and video because then you've got this and maybe you can clip something from a website that shows the, the weather for that day. So in essence, you're digitizing this experience, but you're using multiple sources with the opportunity to draw or to paint uh, digitally as well. But I just wanted to mention Freeform. Oh,
1: that's amazing. Oh, that's that's awesome. So I intentionally have not... I, I, I'm pointing right here. I have an iPad Pro with the pencil, and I have Procreate, and I started down that path, and then I realized... It was an enormous time commitment to learn Procreate, first of all, uh, and all those things. And I'm on technology eight hours, 10 hours a day. So my journaling has always been analog. I have a leather journal. I write with a fountain pen, the same fountain pen for 35 years. And that gives me, that's my personal space of happiness. When I pick those things up and put the phone away or the close the computer, I'm super happy. Um, But that's not to say uh, there's no judgment that um, your journaling could not be fabulous on an iPad with, you know, how amazing to do that. So yeah, I want to make sure that that's not something we promulgate. Journaling is Whatever you make.
0: And it's not like, so I've had urban sketchers on here, right? And the feeling with urban sketching is it has to be done in the environment, mm. right? It's not something you do at home. Although a lot of urban sketchers do that as a matter of practice and, and working on perspective and things. So with nature journaling, you could do it in the field. You could do it at home. Like, it. right? It's, it's not necessary that you have to be outside when you're doing this. Uh,
1: so I guess I would say that by the definition I used Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is to practice observation I would say yes nature journaling does for the most part take part in nature you might run out of time and snap a photo so you can finish your sketch later Uh, but if you do all of it at home then that's journaling which is lovely. But nature journaling by definition is observing, learning, absorbing. In fact, a huge part of the teaching that I do, the first part of learning to journal is not even to pick up your journal, but to sit there first and observe. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Where are you? What habitat is this? What is the temperature? What is the sky? What are the clouds? These are all things that you, ha- you can't do from your room inside. Um, so I would say that yeah, nature journaling does begin outdoors. There's absolutely no reason why you can't finish with a photo. But um, I would encourage people to connect nature with their journals
0: it's good that there's that flexibility because sometimes the subjects that you're trying to deal with may present some <laughs> interesting challenges and in trying to get still.
1: Oh, one of the things I, yeah, the, 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 almost without fail, there are two or three people in beginning journaling classes who the first thing they want to pick to draw is like birds. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you couldn't pick anything harder. Right. right. They're like, you're like, Oh, the beautiful hummingbird. And you look down and you draw the little circle for the head and you look up and it's like, uh, it's gone. <laughs> how how do you do that? Well did yeah, well the Audubon and all those people who have the gorgeous field studies. It took days and days of observations. Um well an Audubon shot them, but anyway. Um
0: <laughs> So and and so that's the thing too, is it's not just about animals, it's about you know it's about trees and flowers and things sure. like that as well. So it is and I've done a fair bit of nature journaling, like in nature, and I've done a lot where I've started in nature, and then I go back inside and kind of finish it up because the bugs are bad, or <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I just, I'm too old for this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mosquitoes and black flies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it is good. And I, I heard uh, John Muir Laws on, previ- on a podcast talking about this. And it's, it's very true. We have a pond out back. So that's a kind of our curated nature space in that I just go out and sit by the pond, and I observe what's going on with turtles, frogs, and everything else. And it is true that if you go out and sit with nature, for more than five or 10 minutes, it'll start to come back on you, right? Mm-hmm. It starts to emerge, everything comes out, and uh, there's an opportunity there to, to to interact with it and draw and make notes. And I really love the idea that, you know. If you feel like your drawing's missing something, write some words. <laughs> like,
1: exactly. No, that's that's um, a good point. I think we see that a lot in people asking or, or thinking that a nature journal page has to be beautifully laid out and perfectly pleasing to the eye. And I, and a lot of the teachers I know, like to try to encourage people to just let it be organic and li- write lots of notes because you're you're again going back to you you're drawing to learn so on Wednesday we did a we revisited uh, six field study sites that we started in the 1990s for a book we did called the Nature Dur- Nature excuse me <laughs> Southern Arizona Nature Almanac which is a phenological guide to southern Arizona and I was out. We're visiting these study sites, which are transect, and just the act of sitting there, and you know, I'll sketch something, but then I'm taking intense notes around the sketching. Like, there's an ant on. Look at this little black ant on this berry. What what is this black ant doing on this berry? Uh, question mark. You know, and or you know, why are why are there three different size pods on this plant? Or I mean, there were just so many questions, and that's nature journaling as as a practice
0: yeah it's uh I think everyone should be doing this, and you know what would you say to somebody who lives in the middle of a city?
1: Oh, there's nature everywhere, so you know from your balcony, you can observe the sky, birds uh plant plants right there, trees in your park. I think that that's there is no definition in terms of the habitat you can find nature everywhere. Uh I did a program during the depths of COVID. I volunteered with a two teachers in Boston who had a total of 300 middle school students in their they have an art science program in their middle school which is about as awesome as you can I mean I was just like blown away. Really? <laughs> but they're in COVID so they thought nature journaling would be a great thing to assign the kids as part of their learning. So we had 300, all right, there were like four different groups, students, and I I gave them free access to my book. And they went through my book. And when we meet on Zoom, I was just blown away by what, these are, these are kids, this is, when you think Boston, I know we all think, well-to-do, but Boston has a very large middle class and lower economic, struggling economic classes. And these were kids in the concrete jungle, if you will. These were not kids in the suburbs. And they were writing about that's like one square foot of a tree they could see from their bedroom window on the sixth floor of the tenement they lived in. Hmm. Or they tree on the corner was the only tree they passed in their whole neighborhood, because everything else was, but they found it, and they found butterflies, and they found birds, and beautiful things, and it, boy, did it open my eyes.
0: Hmm. It's good to see through someone else's eyes that way, that's...
1: Yes, it is. Makes
0: you appreciate what's, uh, what's around you for sure.
1: Yeah, yes.
0: So can I ask you, when you're journaling, you mentioned Fountain Pen, are you Going like so, what are your tools? Are you like so? You've got the five palette, five color palette. <laughs> but when you're when you're creating, either drawing or writing, are you using the same tool? Are you using a fountain pen in both cases? Do you sketch with a pencil first? I'm just curious about your process and in, in documenting.
1: Mm, so I might be a bit of an outlier here. I guess I'm strictly a minimalist, mostly because I want to say I'm lazy, but. I'm also mostly responding to my brain. My brain is extremely active, and I don't want to be bouncing around trying to find tools and supplies when my brain is trying, taking in all this fabulous information, just you know, the all really rapidly. Like, I've, let me go back to Wednesday, just a couple of days ago. I'm sitting, listening. I was like. Oh, my gosh, red-faced warbler singing, uh, American Robin singing. Oh, there goes a hummingbird. What hummingbird was that? You know, I don't want to, or I'm sketching that, or I'm, I'm whatever. I don't want to be, oh, I need to go find the right tool to do that. So, no, I, yeah. I write and sketch exclusively with a fountain pen, which is a, it's 38 years old now. It is a 38-year-old Mont Blanc which I consider probably one of the finest sketching tools ever. And yes, they're expensive, but you can find this particular one on eBay for about $100 now. Considering that it's the only tool I've used for 38 years, it's probably the cheapest thing that I've ever used. I can go through 10 micron pens, maybe 20 a month. Multiply that by the expense and the plastic in the landfill, I'm pretty happy with my my Mont Blanc. It has a nib that can do teeny tiny little whisker lines. It can do stipples like a... What are those... When we learned scientific illustration, what are those... Rapidographs. Did you use rapidographs? No, No. Oh, okay. So those of you listening who took scientific illustration, there was a tool in the 70s and 80s called a rapidograph that you can do these amazing stippling with. And there's a refillable pen... Um, Anyway, the Mont Blanc can do that. It can do fat lines. I just love it. And it's got a reservoir. So I use um, platinum brand ink and it's the platinum carbon, which is a pigment based ink, which means it is waterproof, dries pretty rapidly and it's archival. And so I love it. Uh, I do have to use the pen almost every day or that ink will clog it. So that's a nice excuse. And then I use uh, as, uh, like the same paper. I don't switch papers out in my journal. My journal is kind of a perpetual journal that I re- refill the paper myself. And the the five colors. I just use a true cyan, magenta, and yellow. I use uh manganese blue hue, which is, these are all Daniel Smith. I do have the green leaf blueberry paints of the same colors uh, but they are hard to get but daniel smith do great too so manganese blue hue uh quinacridone rose and um Aureolin yellow which is used to be fugitive but daniel smith fixed it it's no longer fugitive doesn't really matter for journals anyway and then i add burnt sienna and a an endanthrone blue for a a warm blue and i can do any colors i need right there and i use a traditional brush with a um a little water reservoir, I okay. have a water brush, but they're hard to control and kind of poopy at times
0: yeah i've I've t- kind of trained myself to use the water brushes, and I find that they get better with use mm-hmm. because you want more pigment plugging up the nylon so the water exactly. doesn't run out
1: yeah, I think once it gets a lot of in my case, not just pigment, but we have hard water, so it's yeah. like 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 the um. The, the, the calcium deposits. But yeah, at first when you start out, it, it just poops water all over the place. It's horrible.
0: Yeah, like if you've got kids and they're not going to smash it, just give it to your kids to play with for a couple of months and then take That's it from them. That's
1: a great <laughs> idea. Then it'll be all broken in and ready to go.
0: Exactly. Just trim a couple of the nylon hairs and you'll be fine.
1: Yeah. And I don't sketch, I don't start with pencil. I, I go straight to pen. I, uh, I use a little technique um, where I, I do dot mapping, I call it. I learned that from Mark Mark Tarot Holmes. Have you talked to him yet?
0: He's going to be on the podcast right before you.
1: <laughs> okay. He won't remember me, but I consider him one of my top drawing mentors. I have only taken like three classes, period. Mark was the one who kind of freed me to... This, I, he he taught this fabulous concept of mapping out what you're going to draw first with these little dots, and I don't know that he I don't think he called it dot mapping. I call it dot mapping now, um, which lets you kind of make this plan in your paper, and then you connect the dots later. Going straight to ink, forget the pencil. Pencil pencil gives you an out. The out I think stifles spontaneity. And the most beautiful drawings come from spontaneity. So if you can do away with the pencil. (laughs) And so I do. And sometimes I do some real stinkers. It's like, oh, wow, I really wish I had done pencil first. (laughs) But oh, well.
0: Yeah, I think I, I would agree. Like I've done a lot of urban sketching and just a lot of sketching out in the field, nature journaling. And I use the same ink, platinum carbon ink, uh, um, but I use a, fa- a Sailor Fude pen because they're oh, like,
1: nice. yeah, like yeah.
0: 30 bucks or whatever. But I do a lot of pencil work. And I think the value for me in pencil, and I'll be talking about this uh, in some of the courses and presentations I'll be doing, but is that it teaches you value. It teaches yes. you about values. And so, that, so I found once I started understanding what, that, what was going on, it made watercolor easier because I started to understand the power of values and pencil teaches you that because you've got one color.
1: <laughs> that is a great point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought that through because I, my, I was more about the immediacy of getting right to recording something. Since I'm so focused on learning about the subject, I wasn't really thinking about the process of values and making those work. That's a great idea have you i just discovered through a friend water soluble graphite yes oh my gosh that was a game so i say i don't use pencil but i now have a water soluble graphite pencil in my little kit and i do use that a lot now because once you wash it with water it fixes it in the Journal. My journal has, the pages are fairly loose. So that means they scrub against each other when I'm okay. walking and stuff. So graphite is horrible in my yeah. journal. It becomes a smeary mess. Ma-
0: yeah. I've got a separate journal for my graphite work. And if I do it in my other journal where I do my watercolor, I will spray the page down after oh, I finish.
1: Okay. That's a like, good point. Like
0: with the uh, the fixative just because. Yes. And I always have like a an extra sheet of paper. Um, Mm -hmm. in the in in between the pages
1: yeah I stick some vellum in the back of my journal and I'll throw a sheet of vellum if I if I have a graphite piece that or something maybe a a pigment that I made on site that that hasn't fixed yet or is never going to fix and I don't want it to smear on the other page I'll stick some vellum in. right
0: so good lead in because I want to ask you about inks (laughs) so I found you because of inks and because of your uh, your talk about making your own ink and and so I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit because i you know I've made mushroom ink, which is organic and soft, and I'm not grinding it and everything uh so I wonder if you can speak to maybe how you got into making inks and what you do around
1: that oh so yes yeah, so uh, I started out calling it feral watercolor or wild color. And it it began with making paint from soil. So in the southern, southwestern United States, we are blessed with so much landscape that is raw and open without a lot of vegetation and tons of those gorgeous, you know, if you think of it, Utah, Arizona with the red cliffs and the yellow and the purples and, and it's beautiful. And so, driving through the Painted Desert, it's called, one year, I thought, I was really deep into watercolor at that time, learning watercolor, I thought, could I make paint from that dirt? And jumped onto the internet, bless its heart, and learned that there's a ton of really bad information on the internet about how to make paint. <laughs> <laughs> and so it took me a year of sifting through all the wrong information, bad information, dangerous information about how to make paint from soil. Um, because unlike a lot of the information on the Internet that says, well, a lot of it that I was seeing was saying things like, oh, I wanted to make paint for my kids that was non-toxic and safe, so I made it from soil. And <laughs> I was like, oh dear, you really need to learn geology because most of soils have some pretty heavy metals in them and you might be letting your kids play with arsenic or (laughs) some some other really scary stuff. Um, Copper sulfates, uh, the turquoise paints that are so beautiful are made from copper-based soils, which are pretty toxic. To, to handle. So you want to be really careful. Anyway, I, I dove into it and taught myself how to make paint from soils using gum arabic, which is a binder. I mean, you can make any kind of paint from a soil pigment. You can make oil paint, acrylic paint. Although I'm trying to get people away from acrylic paint because if you don't know, acrylics are microplastics, and we really need to remove those from the environment. Um, But you can do anything. And then inks. So an ink is a pigment that is dissolved in a sole, an SOL. And it's different than a paint. So an ink is something that flows more freely and the the pigment is actually a dye. It's dissolved in a soluble medium. And the inks that I've been making are from plants, largely. So, sap-based ink, such as from mesquite sap, or you can make walnut ink from the hulls of walnut trees. Um, It's not from the nut, it's from the husk around, not even the hull, I think it's called the husk. It's the green part. You can make the most gorgeous, the same ink that- um, Da Vinci? Da Vinci, thank you. So you can make the same walnut ink that Da Vinci used. It's much, his archives, the archives, it's much, much darker, but that's because it naturally turns dark over time. It oxidizes into a darker color. So what else have I done? Um, Prickly pear cactus fruit ink.
0: And what color is that? It's
1: a beautiful magenta. Um, It is, it, it does not last very long in the bottle, but so far, once I fixed it on paper, I don't know. It's like five years old now. It's still nice and magenta. It's pretty cool, and it's sitting out. I bet you know. I leave it out to in the sun to to see if, how fugitive it is. Most plant-based inks and dyes are going to be pretty fugitive. So when you make when you make inks from plants, they're they're going to be fugitive. Soil paints are pretty solidly long-lasting.
0: For the listener who doesn't know what it is, fugitive implies that it loses its
1: Yes. So color. for, yeah, the most ex- famous example is a Scarlet Lake. That was, uh, was that, whose favorite red was that John Turner? He used it in all of his paintings and it was well known to be highly fugitive. And he didn't care because it was beautiful at the time and then somebody would buy his painting, and then it was like, well, yeah, that's your problem. (laughs) (laughs) So have you seen There's, I think there's websites that have recreated all of his paintings with the reds now restored to what they should be um, when he first painted them, and they're completely different than what we see in a museum today because they fade. They oxidize or they change. Right. And Scarlet Lake is a lake pigment, which means it... It's created from a dye. It's created from a plant that was laked, meaning the plant dye was extracted and then the paint was created from a precipitated form of that dye. It's very complicated.
0: Huh. Not, th- not as easy as just grinding the mushrooms I had.
1: Right, <laughs> I know. Grinding <laughs> mushrooms or grinding uh, red ochres, you know, the yellow ochres, the, the, right. the iron oxide paints are easy.
0: I I, I had intended to make walnut ink last year. We have a black walnut tree.
1: Do it, yeah.
0: But, so we didn't get many walnuts last year, the animals. The year before that, I had a beautiful container of walnuts that we collected. And then I left them out. It's like tomorrow I'm going to go, because I'd heard the best way to do them is in a crock pot. Yes. Um, and so I, I was going to like, okay, I'm going to get one just to sacrifice. I'm going to go and find a used one somewhere, and that's how I'll do it. Yeah, just
1: like from a, a thrift store.
0: Exactly. And uh, no, the squirrels said, huh, thank you. We'll <gasps> take them. They were we
1: gone. Oh, that's awesome. Because you don't need that many, believe it or right. not. And you just use the green, the green covering, just pull it off. And I think I only take three or four hours of simmering on your crock pot.
0: But it's I guess it, it can dye your skin like
1: Oh yeah. Do not t- like wear gloves. Uh, yeah. and if you're gonna cut them, don't do it on a cutting board that you don't want. Dyed right. walnut ink color.
0: <laughs> in fact, just reach out to Roseanne or or, or, uh, or check her site because I'm sure there's information there about this <laughs> yeah. before you do anything.
1: I do a whole there's a whole chapter on it in my book, Master of Field Arts. It's yeah. really fun.
0: There we go. Is there a, is there an easy ink that someone can do?
1: Oh yeah, well, honestly, walnut, super easy. Tea or coffee, it's the same thing. You're taking a tea and coffee are both tannin based, say as walnut tannin being a part of the plant structure. So you're just creating a dye when you when you make tea, you're you're creating a dye or coffee. Um it's the so same thing.
0: Some people may cringe, but I guess you could use wine.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, how many of us, okay, raise your hand if you've been painting or sketching with your watercolor, enjoying a glass of wine, and you inadvertently dip your paintbrush into your wine thinking it's the water. Yeah. <laughs> been there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just continue on. You don't you have a burgundy color. Yeah.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about teaching. Like we kind of implied a mm-hmm. little bit there. And so you have these wonderful books, but you you also do, you've got courses and teaching. And so I guess this, I mean, in speaking with you and, and hearing about your history, I think you can hear the teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it's just, it, you had no choice except to share this with people. And what kind of teaching courses, lessons are you doing at this point in time?
1: Oh, yes. So my husband and I have taught natural history, writing, adventure travel preparation for a long time. And it is something, you know, my parents encouraged uh, sharing what you learn with others. So right now, the focus is heavily on what I call field arts. And I call it field arts because I didn't want it to be nature journaling, as, which seems to me is a little bit more narrow. Field arts, to me, are any of those things that, the, the way we translate the wild or nature into something that humans can understand. So that can be writing, drawing, making maps, creating paint and ink from soil (laughs) or plants, telling the weather, tracking animals. Um, So I teach a wide array of natural history and the field arts, the art of observing, recording, learning, and so, Kind of the flagship teaching I do is my field arts boot camps. I call them boot camps. And it's a chance for adults to go someplace for four to seven days. Completely unplugged. I try to find places with no internet. I do not want people on their phones. I don't want them using iSeek and the Google to look things up. I want them to observe, record Grab a field notebook and try to learn the traditional way, which dives things into our brains so more deeply than if you let an app tell you. Um, besides, the apps are ninety percent wrong, <laughs> in my experience. Um, so the boot camps are literally you spend all day or night. The last Sonoran Desert Sonoran Desert boot camps we just had in April, so we had twenty people. I had people staying up to like midnight in the common room together, like three or four people sitting around this is like they're like kids they're sitting on the floor with their field notebooks, surrounded by field guides, pictures, specimens, sketches, and they're they're trying to figure out what this plant was, or what was that squirrel, or what species, why was this one there? How amazing is that as adults that we can return to that gift of wonder that we had as kids? So that's what we do in boot camps. So I've got one coming up in Alaska, which is going to be pretty epic. I mean, Alaska is just epic. And then uh, everything on down. I I teach very short, you know, how to get started nature journaling. I have a journaling jumpstart class, it's called. Um, and then loads of free stuff so I do a lot of free workshops to help people get over the fear of sketching I do a fun series we're about to wrap it up which is kind of sad a year and a half series called around the world in 80 trees so for wow (laughs) wasn't every month because I skipped a few months which is why it was more than a year but we do eight trees per session 15 minutes per tree. So sketching a tree in 15 minutes, including lots of notes about it, details. It's so fun and people have responded. So those are like free workshops that happen. And our last one's coming up. It's going to be kind of sad.
0: I'm glad you did that. I really, you know, I draw a lot. I draw a lot. Um, And I, I always get caught up in the branch that the animal's on. Everybody... He thinks like it's, you know, oh, you rendered the the chickadee beautifully, whatever. And it's like, but look at the bark. I spent like three times more time on the bark. Yes. I think trees are just the most beautiful um, items out there because of the the intricacy and and just the way that the bark has grown out and animals have found homes. I went and saw fireflies emerging on a maple tree <gasps> just before we just before we connected, and oh. uh, so it's it's just wonderful to see this kind of environment kind of providing uh, opportunities for everything that's growing out there and living and trees are awesome
1: trees are amazing i think in another life i would have been a botanical illustrator i don't have the i like i like to be doing tons of different things so but to be a botanical illustrator you would have to focus on that 100 percent. you couldn't yes i couldn't do anything else
0: yeah, it is, it's, it's a huge amount of work, right?
1: But yeah, I, I agree. So yeah, trees are amazing. So
0: And so this information is available on your website. I'll provide links to that as well.
1: Sure. Yes, I have a, a whole section, new section we just launched called the Nature Journal Academy, which has so many free resources as well as lots of inexpensive classes and things to get started. And books.
0: I'll provide links to all of that uh, in the show notes as well. And so as a matter of what's coming up too, by the time this episode goes live, the event that's happening next week will have occurred. Right. <laughs> but maybe you can speak to it because this happens every year and then you've got one in the fall as well. So do you want to speak yeah, to those? Yes.
1: So um, as we mentioned earlier, I am in, have been involved in the Wild Wonder programs with John Muir Law's since 2019 when we had the first wild wonder nature journaling conference live in person in california at pacific grove near monterey and then since then it's been online so we have several big events now we do every year the one coming up next week is the nature journal educators conference where we are actually excuse me workshop it's the we don't want to brand it as a conference because it's much smaller it is intended for people who teach journaling whether at the traditional school level like you are an elementary school or high school teacher anywhere in the world or you're a public uh, general public community educator like myself Uh, it's for everybody so we have it's intended to to give you a lot of tools and information you need to develop your practice and not trying to create cookie cutter nature journalers, but to just to help encourage people. Anyone can teach you know get rid of this imposter syndrome. You don't need to be famous or have a book or whatever to teach. Everyone who's enthusiastic should and could teach. And so that will also have online you can, buy the recordings of it so you if you missed it you can still access it and that will be part of a future 2024 the Wild Wonder Foundation will have a really exciting new nature journal educator certificate so you can actually get certified as an educator if that is valuable to you as a teacher or in your professional work. That's cool. And then in the in the September every year we have the Wild Wonder Nature Journaling Conference, which is huge. Uh, we have thirty some odd teachers, which you are going to be one this year, which we're <laughs> yes. so excited. I am and excited too. Yes. Yeah, so each teacher teaches an hour and a half class. Imagine so five days straight from eight o'clock in the morning. Till eight, way beyond 8 o'clock at night. We run back-to-back programs, social times, online. So we have well over a 1,000 people, 1,200, 1,300 people from all over the world. So, so excited to reach that many people to share nature journaling and some of the most interesting practitioners in the world. Not just famous people, but also just... People who are doing fantastic things and have something to teach us all.
0: Yeah, it was, I really enjoyed it last year and I was so motivated. It was uh, Brooke Morales who said, Mike, you you should really submit some ideas. So it was nice. her that kind of I'm pushed glad me you along. Did.
1: But what was your favorite part of, if you could pick one thing that you really, what resonated with you? I don't. It's hard, isn't it? It's so big. It
0: it is hard. Like I, you know, the reason you're here is probably because of that. It's it's the thing that I remember is talking to you about hearing your talk and then having the chance to chat with you about mushroom ink, because I feel like it's it's that shiny thing that I did once, and some people don't care, and others think it's really cool, and I just it's like, hey, I've got a story about mushroom ink, and (laughs) you're so enthusiastic about it, but I think. You know the talks were all fantastic, but the thing that I also enjoyed a lot was the the, the social events with the breakout rooms where you can just mm, see it. I know
1: talk. that's where we met. Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: I... And that I really enjoyed, like the the, the ability to talk with other nature journalers and and
1: that's good to know.
0: Sometimes we would share our work or share what we're working on or some tools or whatever the case. And uh, I really found that kind of powerful and i followed so many people based on that like i kind of i wish people would share they would just come on and have their at instagram up there so we could just maybe have people
1: put their handles in their like written in their
0: exactly their
1: titles instead of your name
0: but it was like there is simply no event like it and
1: no there really isn't and and it's it's Pretty incredible. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Uh, the Making Wild Color, that cracks me up when you said, you know, how, how excited you were about the mushroom ink thing. And we were like connected, like, oh, my God, yeah. But probably the funniest feedback I ever got for a class was from that one. So a comment from someone on, you know, the feedback after the class is the person wrote. "I don't I don't get it. I don't I don't what's the point? And I was just like, <laughs> oh and then I you know thinking of Mike, it's like well okay, I guess there's this weird subset of us who's like we get all excited that you can go out and pick up this mushroom or this clump of dirt, come back and make something that you can communicate with. And I think that is primal. That is something humans have been doing for millions of years. The process hasn't changed at all. Yep. We've been grinding pigment or turning mushrooms into pigment since we could pick up a tool.
0: I had learned about mushrooming from an artist I know who signed her prints with mushroom ink.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And then I thought, and she's an amazing illustrator in the UK, Joe Brown.
1: Oh, Yeah.
0: And what I decided to do was make some, because we have them here. They come out in like August, September. And I made some, and I decided I was going to create a draw, or paint, I should say, because it's a paint. It's like watercolor, so it's not as bad as, as walnut ink. But I painted oh. the mushrooms that were the subject of this. So I felt like it was a whole kind of recursion thing where I drew uh-huh. them with their own materials, and or painted them with their own materials. And uh, it was magical. But it, some people... Connect with other things, and that's okay.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. And you know, what just occurred to me when I was trying to think that through. If someone who said, "I don't get it," it's like, "Oh shoot, maybe I'm just not communicating that well enough." But also, what I want to—I went back. I kind of like backshift, downshift, back and back and back. Like, what is the origin of all this? And the origin of all this kind of goes to the beginning of our conversation, and that is. Where did we all embrace creativity? And for me, I just remember always having this thing in my mind of going, I could do that. Hey, I, I could do that. And I got that from my mom and dad. And they, my, my dad was a scientist. He, he was an engineer. He developed guided missile systems. He was a brainiac. But he relaxed by being creative. And dad would like, one day he'd be like, oh well, dad's making, dad just taught himself woodwork. Oh, wow, look what he's doing. He's making furniture, what? Or my mom would do these, she was a classical pianist. She, she could play them like incredible pieces of music. It's like, so I could do that, you know? There was no limit. So maybe that's what it all goes back to, right, in our creative practice is learning to find that part of ourself that says, I can do that.
0: Right, and being open to receive it. Like if you go to the Nature Journal, the, the Wild Wonder Conference in the fall, go in ready to receive it, ready mm-hmm. to, to just take on what's there.
1: Yeah, to, you gotta you got to remove the I can't do that idea or the, I don't have that talent. Mm, no, that, that's just not true. There's no such thing as that. I guarantee you, if, if we can get there, we can find that place where you can learn because, and it, it doesn't come easy like you said, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's a long haul, mm-hmm. uh, but it's worth it. Watercolor was hard.
0: It was hard. What do you think your parents would say about where you are now and the impact you've had on so many people in connecting with nature?
1: Oh. <laughs> well, I, I giggle because so my mom died two, uh, two years ago um, at 92. Wow. And um, on her own terms, it was awesome. She was sparky and spunky right up to the end. And she used to say... I gave up trying to explain to people what you and Jonathan did, <laughs> and I thought, "Yay! Oh, that's exactly where I want to be." She she just said, "You're adventurers," so I I I I know they were super happy uh, with our path. Even though I'm sure there were times talking together, they were like what are they doing? <laughs> they just quit their jobs. What? You know, they had no concept of that. So yeah, no, they, they may have doubted, but they never expressed that doubt to us. And that's a gift that few parents do.
0: Yeah. It's hard to hold back that bit.
1: Yes, it is. And yeah. they never, ever said you shouldn't do that. They, they, might have obliquely occasionally said.
0: <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> well, or,
1: or maybe suggesting, you know, do you have a safety net or, right. or what have you? But, but um, I can never remember a time where they, they said. I mean, I joke that I was the fifth of five children, so by the time I got around they were so tired of having being parents that they just let me do whatever. <laughs> but I don't think that's true. I I think they were pretty awesome.
0: Well, I think they did an awesome job. And I I thank you for everything that you're doing for the community and, and sharing uh, and doing these boot camps and uh, just experiencing the world and then putting it down on paper, whether it's through drawing and writing and sharing it with us.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: So I wanted to ask you, as I always do with my guests, for a little bit of homework, (laughs) a little exercise, a little something that the listener can try. You know that I'm sure there's nature journalers listening to this now, there's some that may not be, so I'm wondering if you have a bit of homework that some somebody can try to kind of move their creative practice forward.
1: That's really fun, and I'm going to kind of touch on something that just happened. I've been asked to teach a class for a botanical illustrator group, and i when I was approached I thought oh, i I told. Andrea, I was like, no, I'm not qualified. I'm not, a, I'm not a botanical illustrator. She said, no. What I would like you to teach is the power of observing in nature. Most botanical illustrators don't actually get out and sketch in nature, they do it from specimens or in their studio. So I guess I would challenge people, whether you are a, a professional, longtime practicing studio artist or a beginning nature journaler, to get out for half an hour, even at lunch. If you don't have time, you're busy, you've got kids, whatever. And spend 30 minutes. Well, take the first 15 minutes and just observe. Just observe. Don't write anything down. You're the world around you. What are you seeing, smelling, hearing, feeling? And then spend 15 minutes recording it, whether it's words or one sketch, you know, maybe it's the robin that was singing or the beautiful rose that was growing in the garden next to your your door. So, yeah, that's what I would, would challenge people to get out and observe and record in nature.
0: That's a great idea. Yeah, I think we, and, and maybe it's partially COVID, like I was talking to my wife about that, you know, we've been kind of locked up that it's still being mindful about getting out and being out and uh, exploring. Like, you know, we, we've we got a two-acre lot, so we've got a room to walk around, but mm. just getting out into other areas. And I, I have a, a day job that's quite intense, but I was noticing, you know, I kind of work in, I'm not going to say a concrete jungle, but there's sidewalks and huge buildings. I work at a hospital. But I was walking on the sidewalk, and I noticed this dandelion trying to force its way up. Oh. And it's... It, it's those things that you see, and it's like, oh, I, sh- I should be sketching this, but I didn't have anything with me. Oh, um, so but... that's what
1: I would challenge Mike to do, is <laughs> go back and sketch that dandelion. And right. Could you, so let me ask you really quick. Yeah. Do you have the release ability to go back and sketch that? Even Like, you do the most meticulous, gorgeous, finished works. How do you feel about going back and just literally, like, you have five minutes... Can you four minutes or even three minutes? Could you capture that dandelion in a flash?
0: I I will try.
1: Uh Aha, see. And that's hard. And that's what my challenge is to teach in this botanical illustration class is how to let go of the finished work and do a little study. And it's okay if it's only three minutes and a bunch of scribbles.
0: You know, what? to be honest, it's not so much... Because I've done some of that before. I just tend not to share it on my Instagram.
1: uh uh-huh. <laughs> but,
0: <laughs> but the thing I'm thinking about is I don't know what sketchbook I would offer up to that exercise. <laughs>
1: ah. Okay, so, we should have gotten to this earlier. I know we're trying to wrap up, but that's why I only have one notebook.
0: I just haven't... Like, I, I love the Etcher ones, and for me, I've had the etchers are the hot press is fantastic but if i really want a smooth graphite experience cuz i draw with graphite a lot mm, i use a, i true. use i use a moleskin but i am mostly in in the etcher hot press and for me it's it's most of the time it's just because of the size i have a nice little satchel with all my tools in it mm-hmm. and i can slide an a6 in the back mm-hmm. so that's what i'm using now but I have to do more of kind of the quick sketches, and I bring my I bring my little satchel everywhere. people think I'm crazy walking around with a, a MERS, but I, I have to carry my little satchel with my kit uh, yeah. if I'm going to be out of the house for more than an hour or two because you never know like it, I keep talking about these nooks and crannies in your day mm-hmm. where all of a sudden something takes too long, and it's like <gasps> oh, I wish I had my tools with me yeah. So I think that's great. I think we do need to get out. And, um, and your point about observing for 15 minutes before doing anything is fantastic.
1: It's hard to do. It's it's hard to do. If you are used to sketching or you want to jump right in, I will say that right off the bat, which is why I say I think we should practice it more.
0: Yeah, it it feels sometimes when you walk out of nature, you're kind of spreading the waves and you just have to wait for them to come back on you and that nature will good, come and revisit you. Good point.
1: You. point. Yeah. yeah, it's that moment of, Letting yourself get still, and it's hard.
0: Yeah, it is hard. But then, if the mosquitoes bite you, you can go back inside. <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> so, Roseanne, I want to uh, end this with finding out where people can find you, and where how how they can connect with you online.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Well, our website is exploringoverland.com. dot com. It's a broad based, uh, literally exploring meaning literally exploring overland but also exploring the arts the field arts uh, we have a lot of books teaching travel uh, we it's it's got a tons of like 15 years of blogs and interesting information
0: that's that's great and you're on instagram as well people can find you through instagram yes it's at Roseanne Hanson. okay that's fantastic Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and for your stories and being open about uh, everything that you've done and the fun experiences you've had. I feel even more motivated now to get outside.
1: Good. That's the whole idea.
0: (laughs) So I will try to do some fun sketches and I may may post something and then tag you it and say, look what Roseanne made me do.
1: (laughs) Do. And anyone who does the homework, please tag both me and Mike.
0: That would be fun. So thank you, Roseanne. I'm sure we're going to be in touch back and forth as we approach uh, the Wild Wonder Conference this fall.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and
0: I will be talking pencil. So that'll be my my uh, contribution is talking about graphite. So I will be uh, doing something interesting around that. And uh, I want to thank you, as I said, again, for, for being on and, and sharing your time and sharing your stories. I appreciate you and all the work that you do. And, and thank you so much, Roseanne.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Show notes, including links to everything Roseanne and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 102. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, then share with someone you think may find it helpful with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.